Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Well, welcome back to another great episode of The Nuclear View. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther. Jim Petrosky, Curtis McGiffin is with us as almost always. And of course, today we have a very special guest. Now, Robin, uh, you've been on the show before. I, uh, it's been two or three times, I think. Yes, I think it? this is my second time getting to be your, uh, oh, getting your second to be the Robin okay. to your Batman here. <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so Robin, uh, for those of you out there that don't know, maybe you've, she's also been on Nuclecast, so she's becoming an experienced podcast personality. Uh, and she's um, going to be a great nuclear engineer as well, which is why she's here today, because Robin is about to defend her dissertation. And prior to defending her dissertation, we thought she should come on the nuclear view and talk about that dissertation and talk about how something as technical as, you know, she she's developing new types of of sensors and detectors and why that's relevant to the broader cause of nuclear deterrence and its relevance. And perhaps to explain a little bit of interesting science for those folks that are out there, Jim. Yeah. And I just wanted to say, it's really nice to be on the show. Two nuclear engineers against <laughs> whatever else is on the other side here. So thanks for joining us, Robin. I'm finally have someone here to back me up. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, get to do a pre-defense. <laughs> a practice. It's more like a practice. So why don't oh, you pre-defense? That's a different story. We have other questions to ask. <laughs> So, Robin, why don't you kick us off and tell us, you know, what what was your dissertation? You know, what were you doing? And, and, and explain, you know, not only what did you do, but why is it relevant? Perfect. Okay. So, uh, think back to uh, pre-9-11 uh, in that era. We had a lot of uh, helium-3 around due to the decay of materials used in nuclear weapons. But as treaties and 9-11 and all of that happened... Um, the amount of tritium available uh, for production has decreased, meaning that the amount of helium-3 we have laying around has drastically de decreased in supply. And so when that uh, high neutron absorber material, that helium-3, the supply of it decreased, economics, the price has drastically gone up in recent years. And so in efforts to find an alternative uh, thermal neutron detector uh, to be competitive with this helium-3, which is dwindling in supply and becoming really expensive. Uh, in the early 2000s, the original developer of the sensor that I'm currently working on was Dr. Douglas McGregor. And so he developed what we call the single or the microstructured semiconducting neutron detector. So as it sounds, it's a semiconducting uh, semiconductor neutron detector. And so he kind of took the thin film semiconductor that was developed in, what is it, the 40s or 50s, and that would operate as neutron as 
the word neutron implies, it's a neutral particle, meaning that it's very difficult to detect that it's transverse, transversing a medium because it's not going to ionize the medium directly. So what we have to do is rely on fissions uh, of that neutron with atoms within that material to indicate the presence of that uh, neutron event. Um, as that neutron fissions, it creates reaction products. Those reaction products go on to ionize that medium. We can apply a bias, sweep out those charge carriers, and indicate that we had the presence of a neutron. So with this microstructured semiconducting neutron device, what they did is they took a piece of silicon, um, think about uh, the size of a dime, and it was pretty thin. It's only about maybe 625 microns deep uh, in width. And then they etch, they micro etch uh, trenches into the silicon. Then they filled it with a neutron conversion material. Um, in our instance, we used a lithium fluoride. So lithium fluoride loves to absorb neutrons and emit alpha and triton particles that we can then use to ionize the silicon, indicate the presence of a neutron. So my work directly is taking that device that was initially developed um, in you know the early 2000s and now develop it into a more um, efficient detector that's much more comparable um, in terms of the intrinsic efficiency to the traditional helium-3 helium detector. Um, in addition, we also are making it much more compact. So right now, for those of you that, you know, go camping, you know those little propane tanks that you use for your Coleman grill? They're green. That's pretty much what a helium-3 detector is like. A little bit slimmer, but just imagine having to put that on your body. And then if you're trying to do directionality, that's, you know, four of those around your body. Now, if you're trying to enter um, a more hostile zone where you probably don't want people knowing that you're looking for neutrons, that's not going to work. Um, so what we've done is we've developed a dual-sided microstructured semiconducting neutron detector. So you know how I said that we etch trenches into this device? Well, what we realized was happening and was limiting our efficiency. So the performance of our device was if this is our trench and all these gaps are where we have the neutron conversion material, there was instances where um, neutrons would travel the length of my finger and completely admit, uh, miss being detected by the lithium uh, conversion material. So in order to fix that, we did a backside set of trenches that were offset from the original front side. So that's why we get the name dual-sided. Uh, so that device became much more complex now that we've added, we've essentially combined two detectors into one. And so a lot of my dissertation work, at least in the first two years, was really focused on developing that sensor, building it, um, implanting the uh, neutron conversion material, which you would think it's uh, would be easy, but actually when you're trying to place a powdered substance into a, you know, a 500 micron deep hole on two sides of a device that's only about 10 microns in width, that's a very tricky problem. Um, so a good chunk of my time was spent trying to figure out how to, as high densely as possible, pack that material into that trench, which, you know, if it's more tightly packed, simulations show that we have a more um, probable chance of catching a neutron streaming through that uh, trench. So um, in addition to doing that, we had to do a lot of work um, packaging the device and putting it into a very rugged um, shielding arrangement that if it's out in the field and someone steps on it, it's not going to break. Um, so we put that sensor 
into this neutron sensor into um, a package, which we call the Argonaut, the Area Radiation Gamma and Neutron Origin Telemetry System. Uh, so typically, competing, competing systems that are modern day on the market are neutron and gamma capable, detecting capable. So in order to allow our system to be just as competitive, we packaged it with a strontium iodide crystal. And so that allowed us to pick up the neutron signatures, or excuse me, the gamma signatures. So we could do gamma spectroscopy in addition to neutron detection. So if you're thinking about it, gammas are pretty common to nature. So if we're just in this room I'm in right now, this concrete's emitting many different energies of gamma rays. So if you're looking for a very specific energy indicating that, say, special nuclear material is present, it gets a little tricky. So in order to have confirmation um, and increase our reliability of our results, we use neutron detection as well to act as a confirmatory to whatever spectrum we get um, in terms of gamma. So that was a lot of my work. And so Beyond just uh, calibrating all these detectors, um, implementing uh, temperature correction algorithms so that regardless of what environment you're in, you still get a um, uniform spectrum across any weather conditions, things like that. Um, all the calibrating, characterization, uh, some interesting tests we did were flying it on drones and um, flew it over a field and were able to uh, locate and identify cesium-137 sources that were hiding in the grass, along with californium-252 sources. Uh, so it was just a, a very exciting project. And so now we've come to the end and um, some additional work I'm working on right now. I was actually just finishing the paper before we got on here was examining how to refashion these microstructured semiconducting neutron detectors that are typically used to detect fast neutron or thermal neutrons and backfill them with um, perylene, for example, or a wax pretty much, and rely on recoil protons um, to indicate the presence of fast neutrons. Um, so there are situations um, where an adversary may not want you to be able to detect the, uh, these neutrons emitting from the special nuclear material, and they'll add shielding. So let's say fast neutrons have a better probability of exiting that material. We also want to be able to detect those. So that's uh, kind of where I'm at right now. That's what I'm working on uh, in a nutshell. Could you give us maybe a real-world example of how you might use this detector you've built? Like, what would it be used for? Where would you put it? What would you be after? Yes. So when we were thinking about the customer of who's actually going to end up wearing this one day, uh, we wanted to make it a very versatile system that was uh, very intuitive and easy to operate, limited options, just either you do X, Y, or Z with it. So when we designed it, we made it a primarily a wearable detector. So the idea is that this sensor, which is only probably, it can fit in the palm of my hand. I have small hands uh, rather easily. So it's smaller than your standard cell phone, smartphone. Um, so it's only probably 11 inches in uh, length and only, I'd say, a centimeter in thickness. So the idea is you could package these into uh, your normal clothing, um, into a vest garment, um, in your pocket, in your backpack, wherever you may be trying to go. And if you can put at least four on your body, on your person, you can enable directionality. So if, for example, uh, I had to go into uh, Home Depot one time and I was trying to see how good is my system 
can I avoid detection of, you know, surrounding uh, civilians to notice that I'm even performing gamma spectroscopy right in front of them. So I was actually able to put them on my purse and go into Home Depot, uh, go through all the aisles, and actually turned out that uh, the granite countertop uh, harvested out of Nevada was the most radioactive uh, item in that Home Depot or that Lowe's. So it's meant to really be a diverse system that can operate uh, as a single module. It can operate in a vest to perform uh, highly accurate directionality. Um, we use GADRAS to do source estimations, activity estimations, uh, many things like that. And we've also developed a mode where you can do a leave behind or distributed. So if you had a um, group of soldiers traveling through a uh, let's say a fallout zone, for example, or um, a zone that has been affected by a nuclear disaster, you could equip each soldier with a sensor that's then going to relay all of their lifetime data home to home base. So if you were operating as a single individual, all of that data is commuted lifetime to an application on an Android cell phone or tablet, whatever your preference is. So it's, it's also allowed, there's also an option to leave it we call it leave leave behind mode. So if you were trying to just figure out if someone's bringing nuclear material on a road, um, you could leave it in the ditch roadside um, and let it accumulate data for a couple days or months, whatever your fancy is, and then either retrieve it or um, give it a command to send home at a certain point in time. So it's, it's a very diverse system, but I, hopefully I didn't lose you through all of its, going over all of its different applications, but it's pretty extensive. Jim, I think you had a question. Yeah. No, uh, thanks, Robin. Yeah, and this, and, and this work has been going on, especially since uh, 9-11. There's been a lot of work being done here, and it sounds like you've made some really nice advancements in your doctoral work. So that's, that's good information. Um, can you... Just, just for the sake of the audience, because you talk about fast neutrons and thermal neutrons, they may not really understand what those things are. Can you talk to them in terms of you know why you're detecting thermal neutrons, and maybe a little bit about why that's associated with special nuclear materials? Because I find more often than not, people think, oh, it's a nuclear weapon, so it's highly radioactive and it's easy to see from for, forever. And your problem is not that problem. Your problem is trying to find the sort of a needle in a, in a stack of needles, okay? And just as a very unique set of needles or a small variation. So can you uh, maybe chat about that a little bit? Yeah, so, um, th so typically we uh, categorize neutrons based on their energy. So anything typically below one MeV, I think there's some wiggle room in where people put that line at. We say anything below one MeV is thermal neutron. Um, anything above that we consider a fast neutron. So special nuclear materials, say uh, plutonium, uranium, things like that, uh, they will emit these neutrons. Typically they're fast neutrons. Um, and what will happen is if, let's say we have shielding material, they'll actually, uh, just like, your billiards game, how you have your cue ball and it bumps into all of the neighboring cue balls, it starts to lose energy the more times it hits all the neighboring balls and eventually it comes to a stop. Our hope is that with these thermal neutron detectors is that it's this cue ball is traveling across the billiards table and it hits just the perfect amount of neighboring balls that it's scattered down um, into an energy or a speed, we'll say, that it will just stop perfectly and go into a uh, our 
I guess, what we would consider the hole, the, the corner pocket. Uh, so think of our detector like the corner pocket. If it's going too fast, it'll bump back and go, we won't detect it. We won't pick it up. Uh, but if it's scattered down just enough to, we'll say, thermal neutron energies, we can allow it to just slowly fall into that pocket and we can detect it. Um, hopefully that answers your question a bit. But uh, so. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to give the audience because uh, oftentimes we talk about neutrons and different energies and you and I as scientists, we think of it in terms of energy, but, you know, speed, whatever. That's why it's slow and fast um, neutrons. And that makes it harder to, you know, fast neutrons are detected in one manner and, and slow neutrons or thermal neutrons are detected in another. But there's not a lot of radiation given off by these sense uh, by these special nuclear materials. So it's hard to detect them. And um, and so you're the problem that you're solving is a very difficult one. Well, I was just curious in terms of when you're trying to detect, let's say, residual radiation from a detonation versus, you know, radiation given off from special nuclear material that let's say, you know, bad guys hiding it and you're trying to find it this is very two very different situations. How does your detector effectively work in both of those could you explain that for folks yes so if we're operating in so this is what i call the search and locate mode so versus um if you're transversing a field you probably want to be uh, more concerned with the user's dose because um, you already know you're walking through a radioactive field. So you're probably just making sure that you're not walking to um, you know, a hot spot, things like that. So in that instance, I would be more concerned with all the data from that user being sent to a home location and just monitoring and making sure that they haven't exceeded an acceptable dose. Um, if you're looking for special nuclear material, which I call the search and locate mode, that's where you have established a background. Um, and as this individual, whoever it is, is walking through an area trying to find this material, say, um, you know, it's in a border crossing and there's cars coming through. And so um, let's say he's just hanging out on the side of um, the line of passing cars. If he has his arrow on his phone, on his directionality meter saying, hey, look to the left. And then as this car is passing in front of, front of his face, his arrow is also moving with that vehicle he should probably flag that car down and, and do a full search. And so that's where the func the functionality of the uh, sensors itself comes in really handy because if he starts with the passenger side of the car and then works his way all the way to the trunk, opens the trunk, he can then use his uh, neutron sensors to alert to, to the increase in neutrons entering that detector, which typically doesn't happen in, in uh, just normal nature. So if you have a neutron alert going off after establishing your background, that's a pretty good indicator that something's happening. Now, if you were concerned about what type of material it is, and you were just trying to very quickly uh, relay some rough estimate of what you're looking at, whether it's, um, did this guy just load up on bananas and decide to cross the border, or is this something that we need to uh, escalate upwards? Uh, you can use that gamma sensor on and look at that sensor and then utilize that GADRAS to indicate with some degree of certain probability whether or not uh, it's a benign or malignant situation there. 
Yeah, just for our audience to know, bananas have a radiation signature from the potassium in them. So if you're just wondering if we're just looking for yellow bananas, <laughs> Robin's exactly right in that uh, uh, that we uh, uh, bananas are a potassium forty uh, output, and in fact, uh, some of us joke about uh, banana units as a radiation measurement, uh, which is very small, as opposed to a I shake. <laughs> <laughs> and what I didn't know was they actually use sensors on the border, on both the Canadian and Mexican border, to not only uh, find marijuana, but on the northern border, they use it to find people smuggling cigarettes into the United States. Because I guess Canada doesn't have a cigarette tax. So uh, they're all around us, these sensors. Let me uh, jump in. First of all, thank you for scaring me about eating bananas. Um, <laughs> Uh, fascinating work. And I have a, a, you know, as a, as a lone guy here, who's understood about half of what you explained, uh, in my, uh, small feeble mind. Um, <laughs> let me ask you just a couple quick questions here. Um, and then, uh, and hear your thoughts. First of all, are you going to patent this little dealy that you have discovered? Is it patentable? Yes. So the, I know 100% that the microstructured semiconducting neutron detector, the MSND is covered under a patent. Um, I believe that was filed in 2011, but don't quote me on that. I believe that the dual sided is covered under that same uh, patent, but I'm not 100% sure it might have a separate one. Uh, the system itself, there was internal talks about whether or not we should patent the system. Uh, but I think the ultimate conclusion was not, it was not unique enough um, to be eligible for a patent. So at the current state, it is not going to be patented or anything like that, but is currently going to be commercially produced by a company, Radiation Detection Technology. Um, and so they are currently uh, manufacturing these systems on a mass scale to be distributed. Okay. Well, very interesting. Thank you. And congratulations on that. Um, yeah, we are a... Uh a show that wants you to think deterrence. So let me ask you, Robin, your thoughts on what is the deterrent value of these kinds of sensors? I have my thoughts, but I'm interested in yours, uh, specifically in, in the sensor that you've developed. Uh, is there is there a deterrent value? Is the deterrent value um, increased or decreased by the fact that this capability is much smaller and more portable um, and so forth? Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting question. Um, so for, from my standpoint, I think that if you were, so for example, um, in my dissertation, I talk about uh, there are some, there's some silo fields in China that we currently have imagery on. Mm -hmm. um, and so those silo fields currently are um, under construction and there's quite a few of them. And so we don't quite know which ones are populated and which ones are not. Um, with nuclear weapons. So what's really interesting is if you were to use a sensor um, over an area like this, or even um, on a roadside to understand the transportation of nuclear material to and from um, facilities that would either support this silo field or to the silo field itself, um, it's really interesting because then you might be able to um, instigate some type of uh, reaction to where maybe 
we're not transporting material through the same routes. It's kind of deterring their ability to easily and um, effectively transport material to and from um, without detection, without U.S. knowledge. So if at the very bare minimum, if if it's possible to put sensors in route or um, in the area of these nuclear material, of these nuclear weapons, these nuclear material sites, um, there's transportation routes, things like that, say the train, tra train tracks, um, it would make their job more difficult to try to avoid these sensors. Um, and not only would it just be annoying, but it would be cost incurring. And so the more money that you have to spend um, rerouting or even finding these sensors roadside and destroying them or even paying personnel to go search for them, uh, that's that's a deterrent. That's that's pushing back their final goal and pushing them, making it more time for them to achieve their goal. And so I think that's a lot of uh what we're after, because especially as we try to get China to the table, for example, and to participate in arms control talks, um, pushing back their timeline and making any making it more difficult for them to achieve their goal um, as they're rapidly expanding their deterrent stockpile, um, it's it's important. Yeah, I appreciate that answer, um, and I think to your point, there's a tremendous in intelligence collection value in this in this sensor that you've developed and and in the example you've given the the ability for us to actually tell which ICBM silo has been populated and which one hasn't I think has a very interesting um, um, result that that can inform how we how we uh, you know look at this at these systems for target prosecution or arms control talks, um, uh, name and shame uh, sorts of things uh, to prove that the systems are actually in there and being used. And then also, uh, you know, there's been some, it's been in the news lately that uh, sensors are being laid about in the Ukraine to try to detect, you know, to, 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 to monitor, you know, the use of unconventional, you know, uh, radiation devices some call them dirty bombs or maybe a low yield weapon uh, with the idea that if we, if we tell the world that we've done these things that uh, then at, at the potential for attribution now exists and that that might be a denial aspect. Uh, and uh, there are some who will argue that that's, it really makes no difference uh, if, if one of the two countries is going to use this kind of weapon that, it, that, that they're going to be, you know, uh, uh, it's not likely not to sway them from from breaking the nuclear taboo, so to speak. But others will say, but it might prevent the false flag accusations or these sorts of things. But I think there's a tremendous deterrent value to these kinds of sensors, especially. Well, I would say especially when you when they can see them, but also that they when they know that they can't see them, and so yep. I think that denial aspect uh, that that deterrence message can convey with those sensors um, are tremendous. Thank you for that. Jim, I think uh, as we sort of get towards the end of the show, this is, is you from one nuclear engineer to a fellow sure. nuclear engineer, what question do you have? Yeah. So uh, yeah, Robin. So I, I appreciate that. So um, I, one of the things I think also might be valuable for our audience. And I, I was curious about, uh, here is you're working with a solid state device. 
uh, and you compared to the helium three detectors before uh, you talk about power requirements. And especially when we talk about putting it on your body, power becomes the big issue or even as a leave behind. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what you did uh, and, and, and the value here? Again, I, I want to sort of promote your work, uh, but uh, oftentimes people think about the detection aspect. They remember that you got to put, you got to make it work. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit, uh, which we haven't heard about. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because this system, along with my dissertation, which I think you had the, the honor of reading through before we got on here, is it's pretty uh, diverse. It's pretty vast. So I definitely skipped over the power requirements, but I'm glad you, glad you brought that up because um, it, this system is very, very low energy requirement, and that's how we wanted to design it. So initially... Um, the system was designed to be able to last for a two-week period, but the battery required for that was a bit um, bigger than we were wanting, and we wanted this system to be very inconspicuous. We wanted this person to be able to put this in their backpack and pass it off as an external um, computer hard drive, for example, just a single module. So if we added that bigger battery to extend the lifespan of the sensor, that the use span of this detector um, beyond a two-week period or so, um, it would have just kind of defeated the purpose in a sense. So the current power requirements, um, we just operate with a standard uh, lip, uh, lithium battery. Um, and so we can typically operate for about 12 hours before you need to recharge the module. Um, and all you have to do to recharge is uh, use a USB port. And so it's very easy to uh, get these modules up and going again uh, when you have that down period. You had mentioned the solid state detectors. And so I, one thing that I didn't mention was we've compared this to the gas fill detectors, but other systems that are on the market, such as the CLIB based and click based systems that are dual gamma and neutron detection materials. Uh, why did we choose to go with two sensors instead of one? And I'm going to answer that question is when you are operating in a distributed mode, say, um, you know, multiple sensors on the body for directionality, for example, uh, it's very difficult to do gamma and neutron discrimination when you have an array of detectors that are clip or clip, click or clip based. So that's why we chose to go with the dual sensor rather than a single sensor route. Um, so I think that that, uh, in addition, our sensor is quite small in comparison to the dual detection sensors. If once again, uh, we talked about the Coleman size gas tank, it's it's just about as comparable to that. Um, so our sensor uh, is quite small in comparison and does operate for about 12 hours. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and I thought that was the, the interesting th part of what you had talked about because, you know, when you look at, again, people go back to helium three, by the way, the reason we don't have helium three is because we stopped building nuclear weapons and helium three was a byproduct of all that. And we ran out of it in the, you know, right after nine 11 when we needed it the most, or we started running out of it. shall I say. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and you mentioned the click detectors cause, uh, and by the way, for people that don't know click, it's what cesium, lithium, yttrium, chlorine, cesium, something chlorine. like that. So yeah. it's a, yeah, yeah. There's a, it's a chemical formula. Just so people don't think it's like a like a pen clicking or something like that, <laughs> uh, pun intended. Um, and uh, and so the the click the the click detectors though have 
have gotten some interest, but the combination of these multimodal detectors are really important when you have a source like a nuclear weapon. And so I was, I was very interested in how you decided to do that and, and went that route. Cause I think it was a smart route. And by the way, I, I, I failed to do this up front. I wanted to, I'm sure that Doug McGregor is going to be uh, listening to this podcast uh, because you're, he's your advisor. I want to say a shout out here to Doug. Uh, been a long time since I've seen you. Um, but uh, uh, he's been doing this for years and I think a, a, an expert in, in trying to find this out. So or, or find these things out and working these multimodal detector methodologies. So I think I think that's very good. I, I'd say one last thing I'd, I'd be interested is you as you begin to uh, talk to other people about these detectors and the value of what you did, sort of what you did back to Curtis here, um, I'd be interested in just backing way out and saying about the motivation for you to get into this field as a technical nuclear engineer, but you are also one of the few people that's straddling that in the policy technical side. And I see a lot of that in your dissertation. And can you just sort of maybe inform the audience of why that makes you excited? Because I, I think that's a rare person in all of this. And we're really glad to have you with us. So maybe you can you know sort of end us out on that. Yes. So I think that uh, people definitely view the technical side different from the policy side. So people will say, oh, you're you're you think like this or you think like that. And nobody really has considered or uh, is accepting that you can have both in one mind. And so I think that Lowther and McGregor have done an excellent job of giving me both minds so that not only is McGregor teaching me something that's extremely useful, but Lowther can tell me, okay, this is why it's useful. And so I think that there's a sometimes a lost translation between um, the technical people developing these sensors and then the folks that are actually going to use them. So if you have that disconnect, how do you know how to optimize this detector for its final use? How do you know that they are going to need a period where this detector is not emitting signals? How would you know that if you don't also understand the final objective? Objective. So uh, for me, that was really exciting to be able to bridge this gap and um, be able to go into a world where uh, you have really technical people speaking very technical languages and be able to translate that for someone, say a policymaker, who doesn't quite need all the nitty gritty details, but wants to know, okay, we have all of this data. What does it, what does it mean to me? What, what is this telling me? So I think that I'm very excited about being potentially the person that can take all of this uh, very meaty data, reduce it down to something that's very digestible, and then help advise someone on what this means and actions forward. So that's that was my goal in doing all of this. So hopefully uh, we've done a great job in getting there. All right. Yeah. Very good. Well, we're unfortunately out of time, so we'll uh, we'll stop there. But that was a Robin. That was a, a great description of the project. And I think many of our, our listeners, you know, for some, some will be technical folks. Some will not be technical. For those who are not technical, I think you did a good job explaining it to them. They understand detectors in a way they did not before. I certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully. Hopefully I uh, didn't speak too much technical lingo. It's okay to speak technical lingo. I like it. So we should have you on more often, Robin, and maybe Adam can take a break for a while. Amen to that. So, <laughs> well, she is the, she is the Robin to my Batman, so that that would be a you there know you Robin always wanted oh, to be his own Batman. So, 
Um, there we go. That's my intro. <laughs> well, thanks to you, Robin, for joining us. Jim, Curtis, thanks again for another great episode of the Nuclear View. And for you, the listeners, thanks for joining us. And as always, we, including Robin, want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength, and of our national returns. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.